Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. This is a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. We're recording on Thursday, July 15th, 2021. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. She is Jeff O'Neill. Ooh, that's little, how this works, right? Little Freaky yes. Friday action. Little role play. That's how we did it. Uh, and uh, we're talking about book stuff this week. Rebecca, how are you? I'm good. And now I'm imagining like an updated version of the Tom Hanks movie Big, where if I wake up tomorrow and I'm you, I did grow like 14 inches. <laughs> it is. It will be quite different. I, you know, My daughter is eight. And so she is tall enough where she's not like a toddler right where not every, like literally the whole world is the wrong size mm-hmm. where she's just tall enough that like getting on the stool and getting up into the cabinets makes she means she can break things <laughs> and i'm wondering like where is she gonna start topping out like she's oh. she's eight so she's got a ways to go mm-hmm. my son's quite tall michelle my partner she's five seven so but I was like, is she going to be a foot shorter than I am? Because that's a lot different. That's yeah. A, lot, a foot know, shorter is a lot different. When you were saying getting up onto the stool and climbing on the cabinets, I was like, this is relatable. I did that yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> we're having, we're having a, uh, we have a big wall in our, our um, living room that is all bookcases now, but we're going to have built-ins that go mm. floor to ceiling, wall to wall. can be nice. Uh, and when Michelle was penciling it out she's like do you think we need a ladder i'm like a ladder <laughs> what are you talking about it's like to get to the top ones I'm like what do you and i stood over there and realized that i could reach up and get into mm-hmm. what would be the top shelf but it won't be easy for everyone so all jeff's books go on the top that's how we're going to handle it we don't it's need a ladder because i've got it comes with it. a ladder is built into this particular that's unit, where so. the busman's mba library can go that nobody else wants yes anyway. that's, that's right <laughs> And my Norton anthologies from grad <laughs> right. school, British just, literature to 1500. I'm not going like, to pull that one off. Whatever very else often. you've been holding on to since your insufferable 15 year old reading days, like that, I think all that can go up there. Yeah. That would be a good category to have people look at their bookshelves and, like, what are the things that you're never going to read again nor access? <laughs> But you can't quit <laughs> to use the broke back parlance. It, that you know, you're just they become part of the firmament uh, of your you, book collection. Yeah, you cart them from house to house. Yeah, we are doing some of that in my house right now because on it we had to sort through books on kind of a surprise notice a few weeks ago when there are bats in my uh, chimney again, and they like to I know they like to fly down the chimney and into the house through the fireplace. We thought that this problem has been solved. I know way more about bats now than I want to. Know. But Bob's solution to keep the bats in the chimney until the bat people can come responsibly remove them when they're no longer babies, because that's a whole situation, is fill up the fireplace with books and then tape the opening closed with cardboard boxes. So we were like going through our bookshelves, pulling off like, what are we willing from our bookshelves to stick into the fireplace with bats? And what is too safe? Like, what is too safe? Our bat forward collection. (laughs) Our vanguard of books to protect us against (laughs) the rodents of the air. Right. And there was stuff, there's stuff at the back of our bookshelves. We've been in this house for 14 years that was like, oh, I don't even remember the version of myself that put this book on the bookshelf. Like, that's going in the bat cave. (laughs) The the Marilyn Robinsons are safe in the living room. We had a a liminal. That's a liminal category. I don't want to get rid of them, but it's okay if bats crap all over them. (laughs) Right. And like when the bats are removed and we get to go through the ones that we've put into the fireplace, which ones will we still want to save and which ones is it like, oh, you've been living with bats for a couple months and now we're fine with you exiting our house. Like if you need a way to weed your bookshelves, friends, I invite you to get bats. You'll never get rid of them. Or just imagine, just go through the exercise of, say I was being invaded by an invasive species tomorrow. Right. What would be rodents. my bulwark? That first line of defense can go. Though, again, you don't have your bulwark, then what are you going to use? Your second line right. of defense. You know, probably... So you do need those. Probably the, like, scion selection that I made was Bob had a copy of that Tucker Max book from like 1999 that I don't know why that book has gotten carted around with us for 20 years 
I understand why like an 18 year old Bob would have read it. Um, I was like, well, this is going in the fireplace. I think it's kind of like how you you kind of are proud of your scars, you know, Mm -hmm. from where you came from, you know, as a reminder (laughs) of how bad it can go and how you don't want to go back there. Right, right. Yeah, something like that. Well, best of luck um, Mm. with your um, bat (laughs) bat fortress. I should take a picture of it, but I'm afraid to untape the cardboard for fear of that, like, it'll just be a, a bat stream coming into my house. I think the bats like it because there's, like, reading material now. This chimney's great. This one comes with the library, guys. Honestly, Jeff, I think the Harry Potters are in there. Oh. That's a, that's a, that's a metaphor uh, in the chimney right there. Maybe uh, about. when the bat guys come to do the removal, I'll, maybe I'll take a picture we, that we can drop into show notes. For anybody oh. who's interested in the book fortress, very interested myself in what this <laughs> looks like. All right, let's do a sponsor break, and we'll come back uh, and talk about things that aren't about um, being terrified and <laughs> harassed by creatures of the night. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of *The Familiar* by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books. And so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players. But what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive even the help of Guillén Santangel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at leebardugothefamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Um, up first, I don't know. It's do you remember? There's that one. Uh, I think it's a Parks and Rec or something where Anne's like, "There's no way to say congrats without saying sarcastic." It sounds. <laughs> it's like congrats, congrats, congrats. It all sounds sarcastic. <laughs> I feel like there's some. Sometimes I give our listeners and ourselves a hard time about listener feedback, but this mm-hmm. is meant to be completely ironic, irony free that we got a lot of really helpful feedback about historical fiction and what it is and what it isn't. So what I'm going to do, Rebecca, if you'll indulge me and us, um, Mm -hmm. is present to you some of the clarifications, (laughs) qualifications, boundaries, smears, and fuzziness (laughs) that got introduced into the, which I will now call the historical fiction spectrum, a grand unified theory of the historical Uh, fiction spectrum. And I would like to propose the following. That historical fiction is like any other genre that, frankly, at some level, it kind of doesn't matter, right? We're, we're not talking about, oh, sure. you know, all kinds of things. If genre your is a mileage social construction vary, anyway. If, if you want to do some different construction or not, I think what's useful here is, like all language, we want to use the word so that when we use it, someone else understands what we're talking about. Yes. So that if I describe something historical fiction, I recommend a book to someone who's like, yeah, hey, it's historical fiction. They're like, why did the hell did you give this to me? Like that, it, we want to be kind of in the, the middle of the bear, the bear curve. The, the bear curve <laughs> is something else. The middle of the bell curve 
about the meaning of historical fiction. It would be in the middle of the, the, the electron cloud for the nucleus um, of historical fiction. So having said that, I'd like to propose, and I'm not going to give every, not everyone included their name, and there was a bunch of repeats, but there's a couple that I thought, well, there's actually a, a bunch. One, and I think I'm going to start with one that I think is pretty easy to understand, is that if it was contemporary when it was written, it doesn't mean it's historical fiction 100 years later, right? Dickens right. is not historical fiction because Dickens was writing about mm-hmm. contemporary London, Paris. I guess maybe there's some stuff that's a little bit earlier, but if it's within, you know, if they would have been contemporary at the time or generally should be contemporary, not historical fiction now. Makes yes, complete sense to me. Totally. Do you agree with that? It does because okay. the author was not writing about history. The author was yeah. writing about the present. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, the question is, what, what does present mean for the writing? So, um, let's see, Sybil, I think, has given permission before to use their name. So I'm going to say, Sybil says, not only that, but it has to be before the living memory of the author. Oh. So, for you and me, well, I guess the 70s are not in, to go back to Mary Jane. Oh, which, by the way, I don't know, this is a weird, well, let me come back to that. Let me come back to Mary Jane in just a second. I'm so sorry. So much is happening. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm trying to, you know, keep it, keep it light, keep it punchy, keep it moving. So the 70s, for me, even though I was born in 78, would I could write about 1979, say, mm-hmm. according to Sybil's definition, and that could be historical fiction because I, wasn't around, I didn't know enough about 1979 oh. to ever write about it contemporaneously. So, so it's a moving target based on the author's age. That's interesting. Well, it almost, I think that flows from the first one, which if they're writing contemporaneously about their time, then when does it not become contemporaneously? Is it the moment they die? Is it? And when does contemporaneous begin? And and when does it end? I think is pretty interesting. Is what Sybil's entered into the fray here, so like, which I haven't really thought about. I guess I have a. I think that's interesting, and I have like a, a half quibble, maybe like if I don't know someone who I mean, Carl Marlantes lived through the Vietnam War and wrote Matterhorn. And so since that was in his living memory, Matterhorn is not historical fiction. But I think I would agree with that. I'm, I'm t- trying to read from your voice if you're agreeing with that as a I'm not mind. even sure. I don't okay. know what I... Yeah, but if, but if I wrote Matterhorn based on research, it would be historical fiction? That's pretty weird idea. I hadn't thought about yeah. that. If you if you had somehow recreated <laughs> you and your infinite monkeys in right. in the pursuit of writing Hamlet, accidentally wrote Matterhorn, which is statistically <laughs> just as likely as writing Hamlet, which is a weird thought experiment. By Sybil's definition, yes, that I... would be historical fiction, or at least at least it would get through the first couple of slices of Swiss cheese to be to, towards the center of historical fiction. That doesn't feel right to me that okay. like that the content could be functionally the same but it would be classified differently just based on the author's experience mm-hmm. with the content huh yeah okay and and i guess now the other piece one some more pieces of swiss cheese so you have to you have to find you have to be the mouse that finds its way through a couple are of you moving here. my cheese jeff is that what's happening yeah we should write a book about that it might sell um <laughs> that not only does it need to be for some, I guess now we're getting towards more and more constraints, right? And okay. we can maybe reorder the constraints how we want to is not only does it have to be outside the living memory of the author, um, but also that the history, the historyness needs to be palette forward to some degree, right? Okay. That, 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 that it is set in a different time is a feature rather than incidental to the book. If that makes sense. Yeah. So like not every book set in 1920 is a historical fiction book about the Roaring Twenties. Some of them are just about people who are living lives and they happen to be living lives in the Twenties. And a couple people, or maybe just one person wrote, even to the point in which the setting is the main character and the characters in action are weirdly the backdrop from spending time in, say... Uh, you know, 19, 1908 Paris or uh, Russia mm-hmm. in, uh, in, in during the Bolshevik Revolution or something else like that. that yeah. You need character and you need story, 
But the, the reason you came for the hang is the setting and the place in its relationship to history, first and, and foremost. And maybe then the, the story is kind of defined by the yes. setting. You're reading a story about, I guess, for some reason, I'm on bootleggers today in the Roaring Twenties. But like, if you're reading a story about like bootleggers in Atlantic City in the 1920s, that's a story that kind of only take place in the 1920s. Right. It's defined by that time. It's not just a, I don't know domestic lip fic about people sitting around thinking thoughts that they're thinking in 1920. Yeah. And I don't know, that might be, a, that might be even stranger stills. Not only that the history and the setting has to be primary among the attractions, but maybe even if you sort of took the characters and events, you couldn't transplant them mm-hmm. because there would be some sort of plot or structural problem that would disappear or other things would come in. That would mean we just have a completely different story now right so sure. okay i think i think that resonance was something yeah. i wasn't able to articulate myself um mm-hmm. in a different way i like that one um let's see how about adding so this is um uh, no, no affirmative consent here so you'll know who i'm talking about reader and thank you for your feedback a uh, listener distinguish between historical and retro which i thought was interesting as an mm-hmm. intermediary term well mary jane maybe sounds like it's more retro than it is historical because it's sort of within the cultural memory of the moment. Yeah. Like not okay. just you as a reader, but like within the larger culture's memory. So basically that would that would get us to our World War II maybe is our liminal point because a lot of World War II veterans and people who lived with World War II, they're nearing the end of their lives. So we're approaching mm-hmm. the point in which all World War II fiction is going to be historical, but there was a big, t- there was a long swath of time when it really wasn't, and maybe that's what we're feeling like it is, and it could be right now because it is within the living memory of many people who are still alive, and so that I think that's sort of broadening out from the author or the reader's own living memory to sort of where we are, we are as a culture. What do you think about that idea? I like this introduction of nuance to the scale. I think mm-hmm. it's helpful to consider this is retro fiction and like i haven't read mary jane yet but to use that example it kind of sounds like a story that in a lot of ways could happen in a bunch of different decades but some of the set pieces are or like some of the details are about that time period yeah so if it's colored by the time period but not defined by the time period maybe that's like retro or historically mm-hmm. infused I don't, here's a shrub <laughs> of history to infuse your oh, cocktail <laughs> i know you love a shrub <laughs> oh boy um so the examples that this person gave were stranger things right that's retro uh, yes but it's not historical fiction which sounds bang on to me yeah and i think there's like a a quality to retro that's different from historical fiction where retro is like celebratory of all the bells and Mm. whistles of a particular time period like in the stranger things example you know it's like just a deep and joyful expression of like all the stuff that was in pop culture at that moment and retro seems to generally be about that you know yeah and um a further wrinkle here in terms of like you know how you might how how you might get some feeling around what the cultural living memory looks like. Think about the birth of your grandparents. For a lot of us, is kind of the earliest point in cultural living memory that we have access to, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we don't. Most of us don't have access to our great grandparents in a meaningful way for most of our lives. But our grandparents' story is sort of part of our story. So by definition, almost their story cannot be historical because it is, at the very least, a forward or preamble to our own experience, and you can hear firsthand stories. I think there's a firsthandedness that's interesting. If it's firsthand somehow, or could be firsthand by someone who's living, it's very hard for it to be capital H, capital F historical fiction. Because capital Mm. H, capital F historical fiction is anyone who lived through this it long dead, right? I mean, I think there's there's maybe a very simple way of thinking about it that way in terms of very strict definition of historical, yeah. of historical fiction, yeah. I can get on board with that. I know one of our contributors, um, it might have even been our editor, Danica, said that her definition, yeah, I think it was Danica, said her definition of historical fiction is if the characters, if people who were alive at the time that the book is set are adults now, it's historical mm-hmm. fiction. And I was like, you mean a book that was just, like it's something that happened 18 years ago would be historical fiction. Mm-hmm. And I, Danica, I love you, but I don't, I can't get down with that. <laughs> yeah. 
Let's see. A couple. Let me just do. Yeah. So the detailedness, the detailedness is also interesting. I think that's related to whether or not the historical setting or an mm-hmm. action is forward, right? You're going to get a lot more detail about the specifics of daily life in historical fiction than in something contemporary, because in contemporary, it's sort of taken as read. Like you're not going to do a lot of explaining if you're writing a book set today about what an iPhone is and how it works, because your assumption is everyone knows it, where if you're writing a book where you need to use, you know, rotary dial telephones or telegrams to understand what the limits are and what they can and can't do and they work, you got to spend a little, you have to linger a little bit on the machinations of the machine (laughs) to explain what, what is relevant there. So that's an easy way to tell is like if the writer is writing, whereas you understand how the world works, that's almost definition by definition contemporary. So Jane Austen, for example, when I was teaching Jane Austen, you had to explain, you don't, you can get through without explaining a lot, but you need to explain some stuff about like how much people were paid, how much money was mm-hmm. worth. Like what, what happens when um, father Bennett dies and then what happens in entailment and who's the crown and what, but if you're reading contemporarily, you already know it's like baked into your knowledge. And at some point, there is a there are liminal cases where people know different things, and that's sort of the grandparents' birth. I think it becomes a useful test. Is like there are probably a lot of things that your grand if your grandparents' life you do understand, and a lot of them you don't understand. But go back a generation two, it's really a different world, and so the writing and reading project becomes materially different to to get someone um, uh, up to speed. Mm-hmm. As it were. So a lot of people are trying to say, I think 60, I think 80. I think a lot of people are trying to capture of what is before living cultural memory look like. Um, yeah, so I, I, I thought that really was pretty to interesting, too. Um, I'm going to end here because we did. This is maybe the strict. Well, I don't know if it's the strictest, but I, from historical fiction in quotation from someone who works cataloging books. Ooh. Right. So you got to actually make decisions. Yes. Tell us. So we'll we'll end here. Um, do I have permission? Da, da, da. Uh, no, it doesn't look like. I'm going to read this because I think it makes sense to, to, to do this. I'm a cataloger librarian. Sometimes I have to answer this question for my job. However, keep in mind that this is the sort of thing that is very that is a very individual library decision. For us, it means this person's library. It means adding a historical fiction sticker to the spine of a book in the fiction collection. Hmm. First. Something was bugging me, but maybe I wasn't listening close enough. But at first, I thought you were ambiguating being written in a time with being set in a time. Okay, we talked about this before, so we'll move past that. It didn't, mm-hmm. con- written in the time, no, you're out. Second, you hit the nail on the head that it needs to be very directly connected to historical events, not just set in the past. So, coming of age in the 19th century may not be historical fiction, but coming of age in Winst- uh, the coming of age of Winston Churchill's daughter is. Mm. I do tend to look for mentions of specific historical figures and or events in the book's description. So that's pretty strict. Like it has to be pegged to sort of like a, I don't know, a push pin of history somehow that people recognize as a marker. Yeah, I think that goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago. Like if you could transport these characters into a different time and not change the story it's not really yeah. historical fiction but you can't right. transport winston churchill's grandchild or whatever to, to a yeah there's just a kid yeah. right you know right. it doesn't matter right, right? that person's not that interesting yeah. and then the third which you'll be happy with but again this is just how my library has done it and at some point we'll have to change this boundary i'm sure but we haven't so far world war ii and earlier are capital h capital f historical mm. fiction more recent than that is not of course this guideline was probably instituted long ago certainly before I got this job in 2012, but this library has only existed since the late 70s, so not before that. But okay. that is how it currently is. A little unclear, were they cat- this library catalog- cataloging World War II as historical fiction in the late 70s, which would be pretty weird yeah, to me. That would abrogate some of our lines here. What kind of excellent record-keeping do they have if that was their policy in the 70s and they still know it today <laughs> is what I want to know. Yeah. And I think the library catalog is a really good test case mm-hmm. because it's a very practical you're trying to communicate to something with readers and have them understand what you're getting you don't want to you don't want to put something a label on historical fiction that isn't so that you don't turn people off who say i don't like historical fiction also so that people who are actively looking for it sort of get they understand what's on the tin and what's yeah. on the tin is describing the thing that's in the tin yeah i think that's uh, this is all really helpful and now i'm thinking about my own idiosyncratic reading preferences mm-hmm. but i don't like a lot of historical fiction because I don't build worlds very well in my head and I want to like get to what's going on with the character and a lot of detail around like setting and how the telegram works and stuff is like just not that's just not my 
jam. So that distinction of like it, that it needs to be defined in some way by these historical figures. There are folks who are the, like the exact opposite of me and they really want the stories that are infused with all of that. And I think this way of thinking about how do you mark those books so people find what they're looking for or like don't end up getting surprised by historical fiction when they right. thought they were just getting a book that was set in 1950 or or whatever is really useful. Yeah, I think I'm the same way too. I like history. Um, I would rather yeah, read the yes. biography of Belle de Costa Green. No, I'm serious. Then, <laughs> yeah, no, you know, I, Murray Benedict's too. new uh-huh. book that is a yes. historical fiction novel about Belle de Costa Green. I'm sure it's good and it seems to be selling well. We haven't talked about this, but um, if I'm going to choose, I'd, you know, give me the history if I want. Give me the Stephen Johnson if I want to know how yes. phones worked mm-hmm. in 1920, but give me what fiction does better or yes. which fiction is especially good at, That's... or you can't get in history. Um, when I'm with, when I'm going for that's my where but, I am too. You know, a gentleman in Moscow. I didn't think I'd be into. Finally got around to it. Bought it for a deal. I loved it. I freaking love gentlemen in <laughs> Moscow. Pretty hardcore historical fiction, but wonderful characterizations. It, it gave me both. I think mm. maybe that's the thing. Is much like a lot of genre reading, capital G genre. I don't like the thing that is just the thing. I like if it crosses over or does mm-hmm. something a little bit more. And this is not a surprise to anyone who's listening to show that both of us are maybe um, <laughs> right. more interested in those kinds of things. But thank you all for your historical fiction contributions. I think we learned, I think we yeah. helped some people here today, Rebecca. That, they helped us help people. Yeah, it definitely helped us. That was really interesting. And I'm super grateful that folks had nuanced ways of thinking about this thing where we were just like, this doesn't feel right, but what would be right? And how yeah. would we arrive at right? And it turns out that someone has already thought about that. Right. And so without having read Mary Jane, I think it could go either way. Well, it's within the living memory. So if that's the one you care about, only or maybe it's one you, you need three of five or something like mm-hmm. that maybe it's not a spectrum but like it could be super detail oriented it's on my kindle it's up next i said this last week but i haven't gotten to it yet if it's super about like the specifics of being a record store nerd i think it could in my mind categorize as historical fiction even though it's certainly within my grandparents living memory it's within my parents memory i was even mm-hmm. born during it right the author who i don't have the name in front of me i don't know her age but this could be her reminiscing about her 14-year-old self. But if it's really into the details of what it was like to listen to records in the 70s, maybe if it does that one thing enough, it can break through the surface tension and be historical fiction for some people. So I don't know, maybe there's five dials, and if three of them, and and they all go to 10, and if in aggregate the score is 31, you know, your mileage may vary how this course, I think that's another Mm -hmm. way of thinking about it. It's not just a spectrum of needs to have X, Y, or Z, but like, out of how many possible historical fiction points does it score? And at a certain number, it's like a lot of people would agree um, that's historical fiction. Useful. Especially as, as, as I think we said last time, Book Riot starting a historical fiction newsletter dedicated to historical fiction. It's called Past Tense, coming out in September. Um, one thing we've seen over the last years is historical fiction be, becoming a much more commercial fiction space in a lot of ways like we would reserve for like mysteries or thrillers Mm. or suspense novels the historical fiction space is sell some books um whether the tattooist the tattooist of auschwitz is one um of course the Kristen Hanna project is largely historical fiction one those books sell and we got a lot of copycats and knockoffs and well i don't think that's i don't think it's fair to call it but some some other books and and trends have come under the tent that has been um, placed and built and kept up. Um, so the historical fiction as a thing that people think about more is is definitely more out there. The thing I was going to say about Mary Jane, this is a weird one. It's live on Book Riot Deals today, but Mary Jane just came out May, in May, May 11th. It seems to be selling pretty well. I've seen a lot of people talking about, for whatever reason right now, it's for sale for five ninety nine on Kindle, which is weird. It's a weird price and a weird time. That's a weird price. So for those of you who follow the deal world at all with ebooks, usually while the book is in hardcover, you're not going to get a deal. You're not you're, it's going to be 14.99 or 13.99 or 11.99 depend and I'm looking at commercial literary fiction which I te- which is why I tend to buy kids, young adult, other things might vary. Sometimes at the end of its hardcover cycle as it's coming into paperback, you might get a you know a week long down price of something. You might get 2.99 this week and then the paperback comes out and then it goes the Kindle version goes back up. And then once it's been in paperback for a while and it's now backlist, 
every now and again, most books will go on sale for two or three bucks. I don't know how these are decided. I don't know what the calendar are. Uh, trust me, I have asked <laughs> the people who would know how to know what's coming, how the decision being made. I can't get a straight answer, and that's fine. Maybe there's not a straight answer to be had. This one doesn't follow any of those things because the general gulf is between like the full Kindle price and like a few bucks, usually topping out four ninety nine. Mary Jane at five ninety nine. That's been out in two months in hardcover. That's selling pretty well. Is sufficiently weird that I think it might be a mistake. So if you're interested in Mary Jane <laughs> and you like it and you want to go buy it, go check Amazon. Maybe I didn't check other ebook retailers yeah. too and see if you can go find it for five ninety nine. Pretty good deal. It might or might not still be five ninety nine by the time this show comes out. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I, I think it's actually, it's rare enough that we see this, that it's more likely that we're in a Cersei situation. Yeah, if, where it if was you, like supposed to be remember. $15.99, but somebody forgot the one and entered it as $5.99 and they haven't caught it yet. <laughs> yeah, like right. That. And that was hardcover, if I remember correctly, right? Like new release? Oh, was, yeah. It was wasn't like, it right? wasn't it the new release hardcover was listed at like two ninety nine? dollars yes. it was It was a bonkers just dropping of a zero. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's Mary Jane. We got to take a sponsor break. And then uh, we'll come back and talk about um, other book news things. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest-paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Okay, Rebecca. I'm not sure. Do we want to go through? Do we want to just point people? How do you want to handle the years yeah, so think, far the so, of the so far stuff? What do you want to do with these? I think let's just point people to right. them since we've done our own best of the year so far. And frankly, what else matters? <laughs> <laughs> Please don't send me emails. I'm joking. <laughs> but Book Riot released our best books of 2021 so far. A big, juicy, beautiful collection of all kind of genres that came out between January 1st and June 30th. The true first half of the year. I am delighted. I mean, it's organized alphabetically, but I'm delighted to see that the top of the list is A Little Devil in America by Hanif mm. Abdurraqib. One of my faves. Um it's a it's a big list and it definitely prompted me to pick up some things and add some things to my stack that I had been kind of on the fence about. But seeing our contributors select some of these as best of the year so far nudged me over the line on some. So we'll have the link to that in the show notes. Um, and then PW has the best selling books of 2021 hmm. so far, which is more 
I mean, not more interesting than the best books, but it's more data than than we get. And also pretty in line with the other sales stories that we've seen so far this year. So mm-hmm. Kristen Hanna leading off print bestsellers, number one for the four wins, 558,000 copies sold so far. Print uh, only, we should say. In print, yeah. Um, these are print yeah. bestsellers. Uh, the Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse is in the second position. Mm. The Hill We Climb. This was a pleasant surprise. The Hill We Climb by Amanda Gorman. 455,000 copies. Wow. Good for her. So we knew print runs. I think we talked about it earlier, both for Hill We Climb and for Wins, in excess of a million mm-hmm. copies printed. Yes. I don't know how these things go. If you've burned through half of your print run, did you guess your print run right? You know, we still got these. I'm I'm assuming these books are going to sell for the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. What does the slope look like for those kinds of books? I, I think that would be interesting to see. I would guess the hill we climb has a little bit more, a little bit longer legs on it um, mm-hmm. because it's a historical document, sort of at this point. Um, but pretty close at the top, they were within you yeah. know fifteen thousand copies. We jumped down a hundred k. Till the hill we climb. Boy, the boy, the mole, the fox, and the horse. What a success story from Barnes & Noble's book. Because that was Barnes & Noble's Truly. book of the year pick at the end of 2019, if I remember. Is that yes, right? Yes, I that, believe so. It was either the end of 2019 or like the very beginning of 2020. Um, we There's a term that gets used in the book world called, if you can make a book, make book. Mm-hmm. You know, which kinds of outlets, which kinds of marketing dollars, which kind of authors can make a book? Meaning that... It can basically sell out its print run. It can make it into a thing. And last year's, was it World of Wonders, was Barnes & Noble's yes. last pick. Mm-hmm. So it was a little unclear like how much juice the Barnes & Noble Book of the Year was going to have. I think they started with an outlier, yeah. um, which is how this is going to work. But it's now a book that's, I think it's out there like, it's going to be out there like Winnie it's, the Pooh or something yeah, for it as seems long as like- we're around. It's just going to be in the water for a while. Um, yeah. I was surprised to see number four is Atomic Habits by James Clear, which is a like self-help book about developing good habits. Good book and popular. I was just surprised to see like that yeah. placement for that, 396,000 copies. Then you get into The Four Agreements, which is sort of perpetually popular. Um, the Midnight Library by Matt Haig. That's um, you know big book of fiction 356,000 um Matthew McConaughey is at number wow. 7 for green lights yeah 318 almost 319,000 copies and that is surprising to me i i mean I listened to this on audio and I thought it was like a pretty perfect experience for a Matthew McConaughey. It's exactly what you think a Matthew McConaughey book where he's largely like reading his diary to you is gonna be um but I'm surprised that it sold that many copies in print i'm deeply too. curious was this like a gift book that everybody got i know um song of achilles by madeline miller still selling like hot cakes where the crawdads sing is number nine mm-hmm. um and then number 12 the body keeps the score which is a book about trauma and how trauma gets stored in the body that book has been out for a while um and seems to just be continuing to climb up in public discussions and sort of cultural conversation about trauma but two hundred and seventy-five thousand copies so far this year um right ahead of barack obama a promised land at 274 and you know in this top 20 no longer is becoming by michelle obama so that's interesting that notable She's fallen out of the print bestsellers um, after, you know, having sold approximately one zillion books in a very short period of time. Um, but that, those are the notable ones to me. And 1984 is still on the list at number 18, <laughs> I guess. Oh, Signet, just a cash cow. Yeah. And I guess, you know, I'm glad to see Cast by Isabel Wilkerson is on here. It's number 17, 231,000 copies. That's such an important book, and I'm always glad to see when something like that is Still in hardcover, too, right? I mm-hmm. think yeah. that's still a yeah. hardcover title. Um, just to go back up and note, um, I think we have one on the adult list and one on the YA. I think we have two TikTok books here. Oh. I think Song of Achilles and We Were Liars by E. Lockhart. I'm given to understand. That's the number two on the YA list. Mm-hmm. I'm given to understand we're having viral crying on TikTok booms. This um, is what I understand as well. So there it is. Uh, again, like a lot of social media, the outliers really lie out. We're talking 
Madeline Miller, 304th, outsold where the, I mean, what else do I have to say? Outsold the crawdads, <laughs> which thank you, TikTok, by the way, for that alone. Good job, I don't kid. know nothing about The kids about are all right, job. Jeff. The kids are all right. And then We Were Liars outselling Stephanie Meyer by almost 100K. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think They Both Died Then by Ada Silvera. I, I, is that a TikTok thing? That's not a new book. Oh, maybe it is a TikTok thing. I don't know. Yeah, boy. Now we're sounding like we're a thousand. We're as old <laughs> as the sequoias. <laughs> Listeners who are cooler than us, let us know. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, there was something else I was going to say. Yeah, the McConaughey, McConaughey, I think, is the big surprise to yeah. me. Uh, other surprises. Stephen King's Later which is number 20 on the adult list from Hard Case Crime. I think that's one of his that's only available in print. Like if you're mm. going to ring that one, you have to buy it on print, in print um, so that it's not getting any fragmentation, cannibalization from audio or eBooks. so that you know everyone who wants a Stephen King book has to get there. The Children's Side of oh, the Place You Go, number two, <laughs> 584-469, which means it would be the best, it's the second best-selling book overall. Behind mm-hmm. only Mothering Heights by Dave Pilkey, which it is hard to underestimate how big of a thing this is. 867,397. We talk about the Harry Potters of the world. We talk about the Twilights. We talk about the other things. But m- the Dogman series just is the phenomenon of this decade. It I just is. I don't know how is. to tell you. Yeah, It's too bad we don't have annotated anymore because I think a deep dive into Dogman would be fascinating. Yeah, let's see. The Outsiders, right, S.E. Hinton. Just looking at, I like to see the ones that don't appear in the weekly publisher's weekly list because they have rules that needs to be frontless, blah, blah, blah. This includes backlist. It's the only time we really get to see this from publisher's weekly. And since we don't regrettably have our own book scan account, which frankly is better for our productivity overall that we do not have available <laughs> to us to poke at. The Outsiders and um, The Giver. The Top Giver. 10 in YA. These books have been out 50 years at this point, I 40 years. I'm fascinated by how The Giver landed here. And my only guess is I think it's still pretty popular on summer reading lists yes, for so. middle school and high school students. And I wonder if we're starting to see the impact of some of that on now that it's July um, on these bestsellers lists. Like maybe everybody went out in June and bought their copies of The Giver for summer. Is The Giver getting big on TikTok? Somebody help me. <sighs> I think it's perpetually reading list, summer reading. You know, it's just mm-hmm. one of those classics. Now, again, what's interesting is to get to number 10 in YA, you only have to sell 150. I mean, only. This is a big book. To get to number 10 in YA, you have to sell 115,000 copies. To get to number 10 in adult, you got to do triple that. Yep. So it's easier for well, good selling backlist titles to have a chance at the middle. Um, I think the other notable one here, I was going to come back to it. Oh, I just, oh, I think only one TV adaptation boom here for Lee Bardugo. Mm -hmm. Six of Crows, Siege of Storm, Siege and Storm, and Shadow and Bone all made the top 10 10. for YA. I don't see anything in adult that I would say that's because of TV or movie adaptation. Yeah, I don't don't think anything is, no. And I think it's interesting that on this adult bestsellers list, like often what happens is the number one will be like far and away huge sales relative to everything else. And this is not that. The Four Winds is at 558,000. The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse is 543,000. Like sometimes we're looking at whatever the number one title is sold like 750 or a million. And then everything below it was around this 500 or 400,000. Marks. It's just interesting to see, like no, no one leader of the pack in a really standout kind of way, other than Mothering Heights and Dog Man. But Dav right. Pilkey, man, it's a freight train. <laughs> it's actually, it's actually, a, it's a, it's, it's like a, a, it's a squadron of freight trains. A, you know, or on top of a Scrooge McDuck pile of money at this uh, point. Yeah, no, runs on gold. Um, another notable thing here in its absence, I don't see a Reese book. I don't see a Jenna's Book Club book. Oh, I don't see a Oprah book. I don't see a good. Morning Amer- do you? No, not among the not among the new ones. I don't think any of let's see. The only new fiction on the adult print ones are the Four Winds and fiction, the Midnight Library is relatively new. Yeah, that was twenty twenty. Yeah, yeah, so no, no. I don't think those were picked by Right. Re- yeah, Reese hasn't made a book for us this year. <laughs> Again, maybe an outlier. Pick Crawdads mm-hmm. turned out that was gonna be a monster anyway. 
Maybe, maybe was a promised land an Oprah book? I mean, it doesn't really count because it's like putting a checker on oh. a checker. It could, I could, I, you, I would oh. believe that maybe it was an Oprah book, but I don't. Cast know. was an Oprah book, but I don't think ah. cast, I don't think cast needs Oprah to make it. But it was an Oprah book, and Oprah and Isabel Wilkerson did a podcast series. There are like six or eight episodes of them discussing it. it they did a whole like suite of content around it. That's. I think that's a borderline case for me to call it it could be i could believe that that without an oprah thing that's not a thing i also could believe that it didn't need it because um warmth of other sun was such a big deal Mm -hmm. hard to say at this point Um, she was everywhere like every podcast i listened to had some reason to interview isabel wilkerson (laughs) we need to we why weren't we on speaking of trains we need to can we be on the caboose (laughs) can we hang off the back of that we We jump on the empty freight cars jeff we got a reason we we think about this from time to time, like who who would be an interesting interview to do? And it's almost like a muscle we need to stretch to use it all because some like most of the time we're like, eh, I'm not sure. Author interviews on the whole, kind of tough. The kind of people you might want can be harder to get. Maybe, you know, the format, they don't know what we do. We should do some more of that in the future. Next time Isabel Workleson has a book that comes out, maybe we'll, yes. we'll try to see what we can do um, to get out there and do anything else notable here on the best-selling books of the year so far i don't think so to back up your earlier point about sales though or to add on to it i think we said in our favorite reads of the year show Mm -hmm. that there was not a book of the year so far like we we couldn't really think of what the book of the year would be i think this bears that out i think Mm -hmm. this is this exhibit a and there isn't really the book of the year now if i had to pick one let's do this if you had to pick of the pick a book of the year based on only these books Oh, interesting. Are you going somewhere? What What do you have to pick? Where am I going? Well, the one that I think you have mentioned a couple of times that you see popping up in a lot of places is The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab. And that's yeah. number 16 on this list. I don't think that's high enough to be a book of the year. And then The Four Winds is like so widely read, but it's not, it doesn't make like a cultural, a Kristen Hanna historical fiction doesn't make like a cultural splash no. to be a book of the year. So maybe Matt Haig, The Midnight Library. I've seen a lot of people. If I have to pick a book from this list, it's the highest ranked, newest one that I've seen a lot of people talk about and had a lot of affection for in late 2020, early 2021. I I think that was like a comfort read for a lot of folks during the really difficult days of COVID. Um, So maybe... If I have to pick one, it's it's that one, I guess. But maybe Greenlights is like a stealthy Matthew McConaughey is like a secret I mean, book of the year. If he runs for the governor of Texas and wins based on the <laughs> the back of Greenlight, I guess you you entered in some nuance I hadn't considered. That I was thinking from my head that a, a book of the year needs to be a book published in twenty twenty one. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so because yeah. Addie Larue and Midnight Library were both twenty twenty books, but. If we're going to expand our mind, which we did for such a fun age, we made a exception that that was, yeah. you know, that and doesn't where need the crawdad sing was published in the fall of a year and right. didn't get big until January of the following year. And we, I would have been an idiot to say that's not the book of the year because right. it came out three months ago. And I mean, right. just just right. literally. Yeah. So that's yeah. so that would have been the book of twenty was it twenty nineteen when crawdads was big. I think it was. Oh boy, the pandemic has done such weird things to the short-term calendar I think it was memory. The f- I think it was. It came out in the fall of 2018, and it got big in winter of 2019. I might go one anyway. of two ways. I think. I think there's a case to be made for the hill we climb. Mm. Um, if you're going to look at Delta over replacement book, which is poetry, it's the That's book of true. the year, right? If you're comparing it not to all books, but to the category from which it arises. Um, from which it climbs, so to speak. <laughs> um, also, it has a cultural weight because remember, sales are only part of our our idea of what you need to be book of the year. Now, probably more people have quote unquote read the hill we climbed just because of people who watched the inauguration and read the poem. Know who ag- could pick Amanda Gorman out of a lineup is interesting <laughs> compared mm. to a lot of people on this list. Um, people can pick out King, Obama, McConaughey, Gorman. And that's the list? I mean, nobody can pick Delia Owens out of a lineup, but... Grisham, maybe? Grisham most, spends most of the time picking his friends out of lineups. People oh, did you like that Glenn joke? Did you like the joke? <laughs> I just... I, a little slow on the uptake, but I got it. 
it's a deep um, cut. That's a deep cut. We have to go back several years for that one. Yeah, I don't think anybody else you can really pick out of a lineup. So I don't know what the, the author's Q rating has to do with anything. Mm-hmm. But Gorman would certainly pass that test. Now, your list, astute listeners out there, which there are at least a half dozen, um, <laughs> will say, well, Jeff and Rebecca, why not Mothering Heights? I mean, Mothering Heights could be the book of the year. We just tend to think of the book of the year as adult fiction, typically. Typically, it's adult fiction. What big novel broke out? Yeah, it can be it can be kids or YA, but you you almost need an adaptation for adults to watch. Or, right? Yeah, you need like an adult audience. You know, mm-hmm. like if if adults were out talking about how Mothering Heights, Dogman Number Ten right. changed their lives, and everyone has to read it, I think I think it would be on the table. Um, YA could totally be on the table. For this. If it sold the same number of copies, but like some adults were reading it just for funsies on their own, like a meaningful number, right. it could be book of the year. I agree with that. Right. I will go with yeah. that. Like, yeah. Right. Like if I, a joyfully child-free person, were like, I got to get my hands on Mothering Heights because everybody's mm-hmm. reading it. All my friends are reading it. We all like it. I think that's a different kind of story about a book than just, you know, almost a million people buying it for their kids. Yeah. And, and, the, and the earlier examples of that phenomenon, which were kind of creating on the fly this kind of rule or or stricture is the um hunger games of the world there's a world and there's there's you and i read you read hunger games contemporaneously right yes but you were reading ya before that like was that like a a crossover kind of thing like it became enough of a thing that you needed to read it it was yeah i had never been a big ya reader i'm still not a huge ya reader but i think that I think it was Twilight first and then The Hunger Games that I was like, well, these are a big yeah. enough cultural deal that I have to read these. And certainly the year Twilight came out, it was the book of the year. Yeah. Yeah. Mothering Heights is a giant fish in a relatively small pond um, at this point. And it hasn't quite made the leap to swim in other, you know, the, 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 the cultural knowledge pond. Um, mm-hmm. it, that's not to say it couldn't get there. Things have done this before on the Winnie the Pooh kids book side. Maybe as the oh, people who grew up with Mothering Heights and Dogman have kids that are on their own and they look forward to reading them and they become on the children's bestseller list for a million years. Maybe we'd have to, but Do that by definition is not book of the year. That's going to be just part of the, 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 the constellation of books that are in our ecosystem. I have never seen a Dogman book. Mm. So do you think Dogman has the potential to be like a multi-generational enduring fave? like a Winnie the Pooh kind of situation? Will we be talking about Dogman in 40 years? I don't think so. And I'll tell you why, is that I think a lot of, I think they're fun. My my son loves them. My 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 daughter really likes them. Um, she's now old enough she can read them on their own. They very much like them. They read them all and collected them all, and they will read them. I think the humor style story doesn't transcend being 10 mm. in a way that, frankly, something like Winnie the Pooh can transcend. Right. You read that as an adult, it means something different. I think a lot of like randomness and fart jokes and like all that kind of stuff is funny, but you kind of get it by the time you're 25, 35, 45, 55, where reading Winnie the Pooh with my children has gives something to me in that mm-hmm. experience. I'm not going to read it on my own, but I'm certainly probably not going to read them mothering heights because like, let's sit down and read this together, gather around the fireplace and have a family reading moment. In yeah. that kind of way, it's good for everybody. I might read it to them. We might enjoy it together, but I don't think it's going to be. Now, you might say, Jeff, does that, what do you, you just said earlier in the podcast three years ago that you don't do that with Dr. Seuss and yet it sells. So maybe it could, that be yeah. the counterexample. Winnie but the Pooh's also not on these lists, I guess. There's oh. a, yeah, there's a kind of required nostalgia factor to be yeah. an enduring fave, like, oh, the places you'll go ends up. And I think it, I think that you're onto something there with will this transcend the age that the of the like intended reader because if you ask it of like in 10 years when your kid who's 10 now is 20 mm-hmm. will he be looking at his is he going to be climbing up the ladder to his bookshelf like you know what I really right. just want to dig into dogman number 10 today That's right that's right. Just That's for right. A, a nostalgia hit and it sounds like probably not. And I think there's a meaningful difference here especially you know there's you think about the difference between the Babysitter's Club, which a lot of people read and really liked 
as young people, but they're not reading them now. Whereas Anne of Green Gables, you read it mm-hmm. around the same age, but people will go back and read that as adults and have a different kind of experience with it. I feel like this, I feel like Mothering Heights is more on the babysitter's club side than the Anne of Green Gables side, but time will tell. Yeah. Um, boy, there's a lot more meat on that bone than I thought. We've got to do <laughs> one last sponsor break and come back and tell me about some good news. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by Disney Books. Do y'all like Caribbean mythology? What's more, a thriller inspired by Caribbean mythology? If you do, I got something for you. A must-read thriller that draws from the darkest corners of Caribbean mythology from acclaimed author Sarah Das, who crafts a chilling tale of magic, murder, and how far we'll go to protect what's ours. It's perfect for fans of Angeline Bully and Tiffany D. Jackson. So, unlike other people on the small island of St. Virgil, Selena Da Silva does not believe in magic. She has a logical mind. She likes botany. She wants to study pharmacology. But then her mother gets sick and she's tethered to the island and she has to make money. So what does she do? She cons a couple gullible tourists with these useless talismans and phony protection rituals. But then one of the tourists ends up dead and at the center of a strange string of murders. And the truth Selena has been denying can no longer be avoided. There is evil lurking in the forest that surround St. Virgil. Now to find out what that evil is, make sure to pick up It Waits in the Forest by Sarah Das. And thanks again to Disney Books for sponsoring this episode. All right, Rebecca, you added this one. Yeah. Good news. This is good news. This is a may your efforts continue succeeding uh, over in your neck of the woods yeah. in Portland. Um, Portland public schools will no longer be using a set of history books in their classrooms after a parent complained on the book's racist portrayals of black people and Native Americans. Um, the parent's name is Danielle Blake. At the time, she was the parent of a fifth grader at Capitol Hill Elementary, and she complained about a book called A History of U.S. I think it's U.S. Maybe it's A History of Us. Um, to her teacher's daughter back in 2019. Um, this is being reported in the Willamette Week by Aaron Mesh, and they first reported on it um, in 2019 as well. And this month, a district administrator told Blake that a committee had recommended that the books no longer be used in the Portland Public School classrooms and that all school principals have been informed of that recommendation. Um The district administrator said that the text contains historical inaccuracies, which may cause harm to students of color in particular. So really glad to see this. Um, They acknowledge the parent here, Danielle Blake, says the decision took far too much time and effort to obtain, but she's happy with the outcome. And she says that most significant to me and the reason stated for their findings is the fact that they acknowledge the harm that it does, particularly to educators and students of color, and that they're taking a risk by openly acknowledging this. And I see it as a meaningful step. And so Good on you, Daniel Blake, for sounding the alarm and expressing concern about this. And not only may your efforts succeed, but good on the Portland Public Schools folks who who took this step. And I think Daniel Blake is right here about a thing that I wish mm. she weren't right about, which that it it is a risk um, in our political climate today for schools to openly acknowledge this kind of thing, especially in the mm. conversations that are happening around critical race theory. And it's really important to keep saying when we see it that this is a racist depiction in a book this is inaccurate it's harmful to our students it's not just harmful to students and teachers of color it's harmful to everyone to be given these messages that are not correct and really wonderful to see educators 
thinking about harm reduction and thinking about their place here. So um, you're our heroes of the week, Daniel Blake and Portland Public School. Link in the show notes, as always, um, bookriot.com slash listen. I'm not going to read some of the passages that um, were especially notable here because I don't want to put them into the ether and trigger warnings of all kinds here. Um, But I think it's interesting. I'm not sure 10 years ago, does this get flagged? You know, it's like, I think, I think maybe not, though it certainly should be. I'd be curious to hear um, if this kind of thing would be kept up. Portland in general and the school level is, I've been really impressed um, with how they tend to handle situations like this. Now, again, mileage may vary. Probably tomorrow there'll be some horrible story in each school by school, district by district. Um, But compared to what I was used to as a kid, Mm-hmm. the sensitivity proactiveness about representation in what the teachers select, what schools select, what school boards select, what on reading lists is really great. And I'm sure it has a long way to go still. And there are things that I don't recognize that could be improved upon, but I, I guess what I'm long way of saying, I'm not surprised that this happened. Um, mm. It's not a huge surprise that Portland did the right, what I see as the right thing in this particular situation, though, as Blake mentions, it probably could have gone a little faster Welcome to government administration and school boards to some degree. There's there's only so fast that some of them can go. I think it's also the other the other thing that can of worms is here. She says, you know, I don't know why it took so long for a parent's voice concerns mm-hmm. to be heard. I think you all have heard us talk enough about what kinds of parents tend to be complaining <laughs> on these sorts of situations that it works both ways. And I think how much parents can and can't be or should or shouldn't be a voice in the curriculum is not as easy an answer as you might think. Um, is it okay when you agree with what the parent is doing? Well, that's not about parental participation. That's what the content of what they're saying. It's just a hairy, a very, very difficult mm-hmm. and hairy subject. But I'm glad to see this seems to me like a very clear case of a change that needed to be made. That's our show. Um, as always, you can email us at podcast at bookriot.com. I don't think we have any particular ask there this week. Um, I don't know if I want more stuff about historical fiction, but I was, I guess I do. Because if, if there's another thing that we missed, another wrinkle and wrinkle to get in there, there, we really want to hear about it. Um, we'll be back next week with more stories about stories and words about words here on the Book Riot Podcast. <laughs> Rebecca, we'll talk to you later. Have a good one. Have a good one.